I have in my hand, the powerful Word of God, can change lives, heal broken hearts, save man's soul. Here's our prayer, Lord Jesus, today. Speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at your neighbor and just say, God is for us. In football homes, Joe Namath's name is legendary. His life on and off the field with the New York Jets earned him a spot in the National Football League Hall of Fame and a Super Bowl ring after his underdog Jets beat the Colts in Super Bowl number three. Joe Namath had the gall to guarantee the victory in, in that championship game. And then he pulled it off. I mean, you remember he ran off the, off the field with that index finger pointing up like this, showing that he stood good on that guarantee. Well, I think it's unlikely that the Apostle Paul was holding up a single index finger when he finished writing his letter to the Romans, but maybe he could have. A couple weeks ago, I shared with you out of Romans 8, I'm going to go back there to finish our series, Living Beyond Ourselves, this morning with the title of the message, God is for us. God is for us. In Romans 8, I believe this is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. And if there were a Hall of Fame of Bible chapters, this chapter would be there. Charles Stanley, how many of you know Charles Stanley? Great preacher, isn't he? Tells the story of a professor when he was in college and wanted to teach the students a lesson about grace. Charles Stanley says, one of the more memorable seminary professors had a practical way of illustrating to his students the concept of grace. At the end of his evangelism course, he would distribute the exam, caution the class to read it all the way through before beginning to answer. The, the caution was written on the exam also. And as we read the test, it became unquestionably clear to each of us that we had not studied nearly enough. But the further they read, the worse it became. About halfway through, there were audible groans in the lecture hall. On the last page, however, was this note that read, You have a choice. You can either complete the exam as given or sign your name at the bottom and in so doing, receive an A for the assignment. Stanley said they all sat there stunned. Was he serious? Just sign it and get an A? Well, slowly the point dawned on all of them, and one by one turned in their tests and silently filed out of the room. Charles Stanley said he talked to the professor later, <clears throat> and, the, and the professor had shared with him some of the reactions he'd received over the years from students. Some began to take the exam without reading it all the way through, and they would sweat it out for the entire two hours of class time before reaching the last page. Others read the first two pages, got angry, turned in the test blank, and stormed out of the room without signing it. They never realized what was available, and they lost out totally. One fellow, the teacher said, read the entire test, including the note at the end, but decided to take the exam anyway. He didn't want any gifts. He wanted to earn his grade, and he did. He made a C+, plus. but he could have easily had an A. Romans chapter 8 is the last line on the test of life. All who read the words of Romans 8 and believe them 
pass God's test with flying colors. They get an A, so to speak. Some hear about God's holiness and give up ever trying to make the grade. Some of those spend an entire lifetime angry at the God who desires to give them and show them grace. And of course, a lot of people depend on morality and good deeds to get them into heaven, and they do their best work their way, trying to get God's approval. But unfortunately, nothing less than a perfect score will do, and only by God's grace, Will any of us achieve a perfect score? Like Charles Stanley's professor, God makes an offer that seems too good to be true, but the truth is, it's the only question that ultimately matters. Would you take the grace of God or will you reject it? We read these verses earlier, but let's read them again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? First thing I want you to know is that God is for you. On June 25, 1981, Eugene Lang returned to the elementary school that he had graduated and attended 50, 53 years earlier. Uh, Mr. Lang had become a successful businessman by this time, and uh, he was a man worth millions. But the neighborhood that he'd grown up in had changed drastically. East Harlem's children were poor, and the dropout rate for the community schools were among the highest in the nation. Eugene Lang made the standard graduation day speech about working hard, studying, going to college. He noticed that hardly anybody was listening paying attention. So he changed his speech right then and there. He said, this is your first graduation, just the perfect time to dream. Dream of what you want to be, the kind of life you wish to build, and believe in that dream. Be prepared to work for it. Always remember each dream is important because it's your dream. It's your future. And it's worth working for. You must study You must learn. You must attend junior high school, high school, and then college. The words are empty, not one really believing that these kids would make it that far. Statistically, and history argued against the speech that he was giving. But he continued, you stay in school an aisle, and he pauses... And then suddenly, as if inspired, he says, I will give each of you a college scholarship. Well, there was a second of silence, and this wave of emotional applause and cheers. It was the start of an amazing movement that has seen more than 12,000 students attend college with the help of more than 200 additional generous sponsors. In the first year of the promise... Eugene Lang did more than guarantee the money for the 61 fidgety 6th graders. He helped school administrators prepare the students for college, hired tutors for the students, giving them the very best chance to make it, not only through junior high and through high school, but also through college. To say the least, those 6th graders and their families found out that Eugene Lang was for them. Doesn't it make a difference when you know somebody is for you? Well, I want you to know, and I've got some great news for you today. 
God is for you. The verse, if God is for us, interesting word, the Greek word for the word if in this particular instance, doesn't mean that God's being for us is a possibility. Instead, it means it's a certainty. It's a certainty. If the clock at work tells you it's 1230, you might say, well, if I'm going to eat lunch today, I'd better get going. It's a possibility. But it's not possible that God's going to love us. It's a certainty that God's going to love us. And God is for us. God is for us. I want you to think about that. Let that savor in your, in your mind and in your heart. God is for us. Your family may have turned their backs on you. Your child may have disappointed you. Your job may have disappeared into the thin air of layoffs and cutbacks. But the maker of the mountains is for you. The one who laid the floor of the oceans is for you. The one who scattered the more than 100 billion stars over 100 billion galaxies in what scientists say is the length of more than 30 million light years with a playful toss of his hand. He's for you. God is for you. Not was, not will be, not might be, but is for you. Right now, He's for us. No waiting. No probationary period. No small print to wade through. Right now, God, He's not waiting for you to get all cleaned up and right before He's for you. He's for you right now. He's not some kind of Santa Claus deity checking His list twice and frowning at you if you messed up last week. No, this, this God's for you and He's for you right now. He's the one. God is the one. God's for us. He's racing down the sideline, cheering that touchdown run. He's the one coming to the mound just before you pitch to the best player on the other team. And He's encouraging you, telling you that He knows you can do it. And when He heads back to the dugout, you really believe you can because God is for you. He knows your favorite food, your favorite way to spend an afternoon. He wants to overwhelm you with good things. He's for you. God is for you. He's got your photograph on His refrigerator. I think that's your birthday on His calendar circled in red. If God has a bumper sticker, your face would be on it. You're the kid who's made the honor roll. You're the kid that He's bragging about. Open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 16. We heard this verse this week at CIY. I had to get it in the sermon today because it fits. Isaiah 49, 16. Do we have it, Jeff? Is it up on? Okay. Isaiah 49, 16. It says, I, this is an amazing statement. I have written your name where? God has written your name on His hand. Your name, your details, your heart in the palm of His hand. Can you believe that? Is that not a powerful thought? And not only thought, but a reality? So first of all, God 
is for you. And I'm telling you, secondly, that God is for you despite your failures. Despite your failures. He's still for you. And the problem we have with Romans 8 and the idea that God is for us is that we're so familiar with our failures. And so says the heart, God might be for other people, but, you know, I've just done too much wrong. I've made too many mistakes, made too many poor choices. I, I can't really believe that God could be for me because God knows all about me. Hey, I want you to take heart. The man who wrote the words of Romans 8 also wrote the words of Romans 7. He had sinned. And for starters, he had persecuted the first generation of believers. He had watched Stephen be executed in the shadow where the cross once stood. And even as Paul became a great church planter and a writer of the letters that would soon make up the New Testament, he battled the sinful urges of his own heart. In Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 14, he said, For we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that, doing, that, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin dwelling in me. Whoo! He's going, I want to do, but I can't, I can't, I want to. That's him. Is that you? Is that us? Warren Buffett's one of the great investors of our day, also one of the wealthiest men in the world. In fact, he's so famous, he had a special edition of Monopoly that features him and his properties or his companies. And in June 2005, Warren Buffett decided to help raise money for a charitable foundation. Uh, his charitable foundation, he offered an online auction on eBay for anybody who wanted to have lunch with him. The winner paid $351,100 just to have lunch with Warren Buffett. We need to recognize the value of the wisdom of God's Word and our access to the eternal God. We can go to Him in prayer and worship anytime, any place free of charge free of charge and despite our sin we still have free and open access to God and that's grace if Satan were a lawyer he'd have an easy case God says the, God says the liar suddenly telling the truth this one has harbored impure thoughts this one has even acted upon those thoughts here are the recorded, verifiable, certified, and notarized cases of gossip, sexual sin, hatred, bitterness, cheating, lying, coveting, self-smugness, laziness, drunkenness. The list could go on and on and on. And it gets embarrassingly personal and horribly public in the courtroom of heaven. And we are guilty. But we stop the speech. We step forward and announce, God, I know what I'm supposed to do but I can't seem to do it. Father, I knew better and I did wrong. I don't deserve your mercy, your love, your salvation. I don't deserve for you to be for me any longer. Could I ask you something? What made you think you deserved it in the first place? 
God knew about your sin then and he knows about it now. And he's still for us. Roughly over 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for every sin you'd commit before you'd even accepted him as your Savior. And guess what? Jesus was also well aware that you wouldn't achieve perfection after you became a believer either. That's why Paul said, I haven't achieved it yet. I'm still striving toward the goal, as he writes in Philippians, probably his last words. And so we're sinners, and Satan reminds us of that. And Paul was smart. Instead of listening to Satan's accusations, his own shortcomings, he listened once more to the message of Christ, and so he leaves the dark words of Romans 7 to make a startling statement. As he begins chapter 8, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of the sin and death. Hallelujah. Is it any wonder that early Christians simply referred to the New Testament as the good news? God's for you, despite all that you've done. Have you come face to face with your sin? Great if you have. And maybe you're still living in the seventh chapter of your life. Well, you need to move over to the eighth chapter. And don't quit because God is for you. And the cross is proof that God is for us. Number three, God did not spare His own Son, we see in our text. Words too short sometimes to grasp. How do you sum up the sacrifice of another person's lifetime with the words simply, her son died in the war. Only six words to sum up the sacrifice of that lifetime. When she first discovered she was to be a mom, she felt the nausea for weeks, connected with, his, with this baby first through the morning sickness. And when the nausea passed, she felt the child kick her in the side. It was common for him to wake up, her up in the middle of the night, and toward the end of the pregnancy, she slept hardly at all. Eventually, she felt the labor pains and screamed in agony, and moments before... She saw that most precious sight she'd ever laid eyes on. She nursed the baby boy. She gave up sleep for the boy. She held his fragile, this fragile infant. She changed diapers, washed diapers, dried diapers, folded diapers, bounced him through the colic and rocked him through the fevers, cheered his first steps, wiped away the tears and the blood from his first scrape, provided discipline, read the books, took him to school, learned as many spelling words as he did, Explain math and history and the mystery of girls. She watched him grow tall and strong, provided socks and shoes for every step of the way. She learned the rules of his favorite sport, the favorite meal for his favorite girl. She read the newspapers with the frightening headlines. She cried when he left for boot camp. She wrote the letters and prayed for miracles. She provided the perfect weekend for that last Thanksgiving together, and she answered the door when the officer came with the news. <clears throat> That a baby boy died in a ditch at the hands of an enemy who didn't give a moment's thought about that man that he shot. And so comes the sentence, her son died in the war. Can a six-word sentence really tell the story? Well, there's just really no way. And yet Paul gives us this small sentence, God did not spare his own son. Paul uses only seven words to describe the heartbreak of heaven. And we read over those words way too fast. God did not spare his own son. God is for us. Oh my, how God is for us. The cross is the unspeakable, indescribable proof that God is for us. And then lastly, forgiveness is proof 
that God is for us. In verse 32, he did not spare his own son. Let's finish the verse. But delivered him over for us all. How will he also, how not, how, how will he not also freely give us all things? In March, excuse me, in October of 2005, a man named Moses Bittock celebrated an experience that he waited a lifetime to achieve. He became a U.S. citizen. That alone would have been enough to give this native Kenyan the happiest day of his life. But on his way home from Des Moines, Iowa, from the courthouse, the federal building, Bittock stopped at a gas station to see the winning numbers <clears throat> in the Iowa State hot lotto game. <laughs> to his surprise, he had won $1.89 million. It's almost like you've adopted a new country and then they gave you $1.8 million. Where else can you do this but in America? You want to see something really amazing? As soon as a person accepts Christ, he or she is given citizenship in the kingdom of God and guaranteed a heavenly reward that would put any riches on earth to shame. From verse 32 comes the promise that God will graciously give us all things. Another translation says He will freely give us all things. Another one says He will lavish upon us all he has to give. Another one says, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? It's all from one wonderful Greek word that usually, that's used only once in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and only a handful of times in the New Testament. From Luke's Gospel, for instance, in Luke 7.21, the same Greek word tells of a day when Jesus gave sight to many who were blind. I want you to think about that for a minute. Blind people begging for a living. One gets a dollar, another five. One brings an extra portion of his own lunch so that the blind man can eat. Another brings a book and reads during the afternoon so the blind man can hear. And then comes Jesus with his gift, sight. And so the man stands up and he screams, I can see! And the first thing he sees is the face of our precious Lord, Jesus Christ. A blind beggar would have received little gifts for, uh, during his entire life. But nothing would have overwhelmed him like the gift of sight. Now that's lavish grace. And that's a lavish gift. What would be greater? Maybe a, the gift of a tank of gas? <laughs> the gift of a new vehicle? A night in a motel? That might be great for a newlywed couple, but what, what, what of the gift of a new home paid in full? The comparison almost can't be made, but... You see, in the context here, that's the depth of this verse that it's, he's trying to share with us. God doesn't just want to give you a tank of gas and out on the town or a $5 handout. He has such greater things in mind that will absolutely overwhelm us. He's already given His Son specifically to die for you, so why wouldn't He then forgive you of your sins? Do bad things happen? All the time. But God is for us. Even the worst of times aren't going to separate us from the love of God. Do we continue to sin despite knowing the grace of, of Romans 8? Yep. I'm afraid we do. And we pay different prices for the wrongs that we commit. But God is for us anyway. During the 19th century, Ireland was stricken by a potato famine. During this time, many of the Irish people immigrated to America. 
a young Irish boy stowed away on an America-bound ship, and, and at sea the ship struck an iceberg and began to sink, and as people scrambled frantically for those lifeboats, the captain supervising the activity and was the last to leave the sinking vessel. But looking back at the ship, he saw the young stowaway coming out of hiding. The brave captain ordered this lifeboat back to that sinking ship. He climbed aboard the sinking boat and he grabbed the boy and he put him in his place that he had vacated the only seat left. And as the lifeboat pulled away from that sinking ship, the captain yelled out to the boy, Son, never forget what has been done for you today. Son, never forget what's done for you today. Those who've never received the gift of life need to take action and you need to do it immediately. Those who've received the gift and yet forgotten the value of that gift need to recommit their lives and their hearts to a God that's for you. Father, we ask you this morning to move in our lives. God, I ask you to move in the hearts of the people in this room this morning. God, it's difficult. It's difficult to have courage. But God, I'm praying that we will today. And I'm praying, Father, that we will make some decisions today to walk a walk that you've called us to. Thank you for being for us. Thank you for loving us in spite of ourselves. Thank you that when we stumble and fall, we just have to look to the cross and get up, and forgiveness and mercy and grace are waiting. And so, Father, today, would you be that real in somebody's life? And would they let that be known today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.